MSW Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broken? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail! Hello and welcome to Jack, the podcast for all things special counsel. It is Sunday, August 6th, 2023. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Well, every week we ask, <laughs> what could happen this week? <laughs> and this week, after only nine months, Jack Smith's office issued an indictment of Donald Trump on four criminal counts related to January 6th. And Trump was arraigned on those charges in federal court in Washington, D.C. Yes, and he pled um, not guilty to all yeah, four startlingly, counts. Yeah, <laughs> startlingly, not guilty. <laughs> With his chin out. Um, no cameras allowed in the courtroom. We'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, but that's not all. Uh, the new defendant in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case, Carlos de la Vera, made his first court appearance but was not arraigned because, just like Walt Nauta, he still doesn't have local counsel in Florida. Again, we're all shocked. Um, and we learned that the IT guy we've been talking about, Tavares, was the low-level Trump employee that received a target letter after Nauta and Trump were indicted. And that's still not all, okay? <laughs> we were right uh, in, our, in our predictions last week. Um, so in a court filing this week, DOJ has asked Judge Eileen Cannon to hold a hearing to consider possible conflicts of interest for Stanley Woodward, mm. uh, because he is, of course, representing people on both sides of the documents case. He represents Walt Nauta, and he represents a few other people who could be witnesses against Walt Nauta. Uh, so we're going to get into all of that a little bit later, but Allison, let's start with the new indictment of Donald Trump. And I know for those of you who are trying to keep score at home, this is number three in the past several months. Uh, so we're going to go through all of it for you. Or number four, if you count superseding indictments. Uh, <laughs> that's a good point. Good point. Let's call it four. What is that like four and four months? Something uh, like that. 3.5? Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. Sounds about right. Okay. So this one, uh, as we mentioned, it's four charges. The first is uh, a charge based on 18 U.S.C. 371, which is, of course, the uh, fraud against the government conspiracy charge. And that is for the sprawling plot to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. So I think it's important for people to understand that in the indictment, the uh, prosecutors lay out a long factual narrative. And that long factual narrative, even though it covers several different areas, that forms the basis, the factual basis for all these different charges. So that narrative also refers to, uh, in addition to telling us, of course, what uh, the allegations are against Trump himself, it refers to the actions of six co-conspirators who are not identified in the indictment, but with pretty easy investigative uh, skills, you can <laughs> easily conclude who the who one through five are. Mm -hmm. And they are, co-conspirator number one is, of course, our, our friend Rudy Giuliani. Co-conspirator number two is J Attorney John Eastman. 
Co-conspirator number three is attorney Sidney Powell. Co-conspirator number four is attorney and former DOJ employee Jeffrey Clark. Co-conspirator five is attorney uh, Kenneth Cheesebro. And finally, all signs point to Boris Epstein as being co-conspirator number six, but that hasn't been confirmed uh, by anyone at this point. I think the Times has leaned the furthest forward into that. They've kind of uh, determined that an email he sent to Giuliani uh, is referred to in the indictment as having come from co-conspirator six. So it looks pretty solid for Epstein. Yeah, and Lisa Rubin pointed out that it's pro. It's not Jason Miller because he's mentioned elsewhere uh, as right. a campaign staffer in the in the indictment, and it's not Mike Roman because he's also referred to elsewhere. And there's only I think one or two other lawyers that could have possibly been in a specific meeting that's mentioned in the indictment. And it, to me, it stands out uh, as Epstein. If Rudy's in here, because Rudy had a two day proper session, Epstein had a two day proper session. Uh, it stands out to me as whether they'll be charged or not, depending on whether the DOJ wants their cooperation or not. Uh, but I, I am leaning, I'm leaning Epstein too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And it, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, move by Jack Smith and his team to only charge Donald Trump here. And as you said, we could have a superseding indictment at some point in this case that would then charge one or Several or all of these co-conspirators have to wait and see on that. So this includes the uh, fraudulent, the 18 USC 371 charge uh, encompasses all these different schemes, essentially. So the fraudulent elector scheme is referred to uh, in great detail. They go through state by state. They also talk about Trump's efforts to try to get the Department of Justice to conduct a sham investigation or at least notice of a sham investigation through the machinations of Jeffrey Clark in an effort to delay the certification of the vote. Um, they talk at great uh, detail about the Trump's campaign of pressuring Mike Pence to try to get him to refuse to certify the vote or to at least delay the proceedings. Uh, and finally, they talk about Trump's uh, impact in deceiving a large, angry crowd, uh, luring them essentially uh, to attack the Capitol and, and to target Pence particularly. So all of that stuff qualifies as, according to the prosecutors, uh, supporting a charge for 18 USC 371. So the next charge is one we've talked talked about a lot. It's 18 USC 1512. If there's a count under subpart K for conspiracy to obstruct the electoral count, and there is also a count under 1512C2 for obstructing an official proceeding, mm -hmm. that one we all totally predicted, right? That was the one we all expected to see in here. It's been the charge that's been used most frequently against January 6th defendants. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's we we picked that up early on when Liz Cheney started using the language from 1512 C2. Um, Rachel Maddow kind of grabbed onto it for a second, but she thought it was 15 or 1505, which is obstruction of Congress. Uh, but the language didn't quite match. Um, so I, I thought it to be 1512 C2. And as time has gone on from 2021, uh, early 2022, We've the you know, with all of the fifteen twelve C two charges and the litigating the meaning of fifteen twelve C two and um, you know, of course, there's just been so much discussion. We had the the judge Carter in California 
who yeah. turned over emails to the January 6th committee under the crime fraud exception for 371 and 1512C2, 371 being the first charge that you went over, uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States, and 1512C2, obstructing an official proceeding, those two counts. And there are two counts that the January 6th committee handed over to the Department of Justice as a criminal referral for the president and John Eastman. So it makes a whole lot of sense. We were expecting to see those. And then we weren't sure. Was it going to be 2383, 2384, which is insurrection, seditious conspiracy? Is it going to be nothing else? Is it going to be something else? And bam, he hits us with Title 18, U.S. Code 241. And some folks early on talked about 241, including our friend Joyce Vance. Um, this is under the Klan law. I think I think Ellie Mistal said it best when he said Donald Trump's been indicted under the Klan law more than David Duke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, he, they, they definitely reached deep into the bag of tricks for this one. But I think it's, um, you know, it makes perfect sense when you look at how it's referred uh, to in the indictment and what they're trying to do. Yeah. And it's a post-Civil War statute. It was used during Watergate to convict Nixon's top domestic policy advisor, John Ehrlichman, and also plus Gordon Liddy and the rest for a warrantless entry into a doctor's office looking for info to discredit Dan Ellsberg after he leaked the Pentagon Papers. So it's a very it's a very pointed statute. We had discussed it last week on the show, Andy, and we were just curious as to how Jack Smith would apply it here because it's called Conspiracy Against Rights. And we were wondering, would it be a conspiracy against our rights to a peaceful transfer of power or maybe a conspiracy against Joe Biden's right to ascend to the presidency or our right to vote? Uh, and it turns out he is applying it to the, the, the whole of the United States voters. It's, it is we are now the victims. Uh, every voter in this country is a victim of this crime because it was a conspiracy against our right to cast our vote and have our vote counted in an election. That's absolutely right. So, you you know, it's basically a charge that these conspiracies, these schemes buttressed by lies and undertaken with the help of attorneys to um, use the law in a way it is not intended to be used, uh, essentially amounted to an effort to dispossess over 80 million people of their right to vote and the right to have their votes lawfully counted, right? So I think it's it's an appropriate charge. It has incredible historical relevance. The statute that was enacted after the Civil War to go after essentially Ku Klux Klan terrorists, people who were using terrorism to prevent black citizens from voting. Here, you know, you've now we're in the modern age and it is now being used um, against a sitting president who essentially tried to do the same thing on a mass scale. So it's, uh, I think it has particular resonance for people. Um, and it has a kind of a visceral appeal that I think is really going to get the attention of a jury. I agree. And this is where I want to bring up why I think these proceedings should be televised. Uh, since there is a conspiracy against rights to prevent our votes from counting uh, and to prevent us from voting, uh, I think that, you know, I mean, that clearly makes the, you know, all of us victims in this crime. And under Title 18 U.S. Code 3771, crime victims rights, um, subsection A3 
says we have the right to not be excluded from any such public court proceeding unless the court, after receiving clear and convincing evidence, determines that testimony by the victim would be materially altered if the victim heard other testimony at that proceeding. I think... Now, there are other uh, federal rules of criminal procedure in place that say there are no cameras allowed in the courtroom. I believe it is up to the board of, uh, oh, what is it called? It's like a chief judge, uh, John Roberts, sits atop, and it's all of the former or current um, head That's judges. That's like the administrative apparatus for the federal courts. Right. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is it's John Roberts' decision. John right. Roberts could change. It is it is the current rule that there are no cameras in federal courts, period, anywhere in the country. It's not just a D.C. thing. John Roberts could change that in a half an hour with a memo. I hereby decide. Here's what it is. And this is so overdue. This is so long overdue. <laughs> it's a 1946 rule. Yeah, in hundreds of courtrooms around the country every single day, people get to see uh, civil trials. They get to see criminal trials on occasion. Um, we've proven that this can be done without undermining justice, without denying defendants um, a fair trial. We are living through a period in which people's um, respect for and understanding of the works of democracy and of courts in particular, and of the Supreme Court in particular, is um, is experiencing like record lows. Right? People have uh, are losing confidence in the system and the structures of justice. And to continue to do things in secret for no real practical reason uh, is just, uh, it's the wrong choice. I mean, he's wrong about this. Well, that and you're going you're gonna to leave a vacuum. You're going to leave a vacuum for, to fill with, with mis- and disinformation. We saw it when the, whole, when the DOJ was investigating this whole time. DOJ always says nothing. So that allows Donald Trump and his people to come in and spin it the way they want. And when you have a criminal court proceeding... You know that the Trump lawyers are going to come out and say what they said, what they want to say happened in the courtroom, and the DOJ will not, a hundred percent, will not. Right, and it go and it, it goes out from there. Right, you're going to see every news network putting up some version of what happened in the trial today, and none of them will be perfect uh, on any side of the argument. Why not have the actual trial speak for itself? Look, we saw that happen with the January 6th hearings, right? And right. tens of millions of people tuned in to watch them. So there's an interest there. There's a need for it. Um, you couldn't have that same sort of disassembling of what had happened and what people said in the hearing that night on the news because people saw it. There was a readily accessible record. And that is so important now. This trial, this could very well be the most important criminal trial that's ever taken place in, in this country. Um, people should be able to see it, listen to it, watch it develop if they, if they wish to do so. Have you ever been a part of or had under your purview a, a trial that was uh, televised, that was able to be televised? And um, is this something where the DOJ can petition? Can the, I am assuming... The Department of Justice could petition the Supreme Court uh, to do this or that body, maybe write a letter. I'm not sure what that would look like or perhaps file a motion with the court and have it travel up to where it needs to travel. Uh, but also Trump's lawyer is asking for this to be televised and we have that on the record. So it can't you can't really unwind that or put that to back in the toothpaste. And, you know, they're not going to come back and say, never mind, we don't want it. Tele <laughs> you know, we don't want yeah. it televised. But I would love Oops. it. If the DOJ, again, would call their bluff 
uh, and file something asking for this for cameras to be allowed in the courtroom. Yeah, I've never it's, I've never been involved in a case that was because I only worked in the federal system and it doesn't happen anywhere in the federal system. Um, I think it is notable, though, like it never happened in the Supreme Court either until during COVID they started making audio recordings of the um, arguments. And they're, they are continuing to do that because they've learned that it was a helpful and meaningful thing. And so like that alone, that process alone shows them that like it's time to update the way we think about doing business. Um, how you would actually do it, I've, I think it's unlikely that the government, especially in the middle of a pending matter, would would essentially advocate for that sort of a policy change because the government never wants to be, never wants to create the impression that they're trying to change the rules of the game in the middle of the game. Um, so I think that's unlikely. I guess, I don't know what the procedure would be to get the issue in front of that board. Presumably the defense could do that and the government could then weigh in and say, we have no objection, which would be in and of itself, a very powerful statement. Yeah, or a joint um, letter. Yeah, so I don't know. I Again, I find it unlikely simply because it's never happened, but it should happen. Here, it's n never been more necessary than in this case. Yeah, and there are arguments against televising it. Um, I, I, I heard somebody um, arguing, saying, look, this isn't a circus-type uh, situation. Um, I... I just wanted to put that argument out there. I disagree with it respectfully. Um, but I, I 99.9% .9 of the people that I'm, I'm hearing from uh, experts up and down are, are wanting this uh, televised. Yeah. Um, also, uh, Andy, you and I are going to be reading this indictment uh, as, a free bonus, right. as a free bonus episode. We're just going to read it to you. And we're going to substitute the conspirators' names in um, thanks to Just Security and Ryan... Uh, Goodman for putting together a uh, annotated searchable version uh, of this indictment. The first one was not searchable and it drove everybody crazy. So frustrating. <laughs> we're looking for names. We're looking for chief of staff. We're looking for whatever yep. we can find. We, it's not searchable. Um, so they made it searchable and they, they um, substituted co-conspirator one with Rudy Giuliani, for example. That's the version we're going to read. You can get that excellent searchable resource uh, for yourself at Just Security. Um, but we need to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about possible defenses uh, and uh, the arraignment. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... 
They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back, everyone. I want to talk for a second about a potential defense that I want your opinion on, Andy. And I guess it's not really a defense. I think it's looking down the road to an appeal. Uh, On a few different cable news networks, Trump lawyer Lauro, who's not a terrible lawyer, came out, you know, I'm comparing relatively with other Trump lawyers. He's not a (laughs) co-conspirator. He seems like he knows what he's talking about, which is uh, in some respects remarkable. But anyway. And now he, he went on several networks and said, Trump wanted, all he wanted was a 10-day delay for the Electoral Count Act. And everybody kind of lost their mind. Like, oh my God, he just confessed to trying to delay the Electoral Count Act, which is a coup, right? (laughs) That that is the the crux of the 1512C2 charge. And everybody kind of lost their mind. Well, remember, you and I have talked at length about Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell. Mm -hmm. He was convicted of bribery. And in 2016, on appeal, the Supreme Court tossed out his conviction, saying the corruption statute was vague or ambiguous or too broad. And they really narrowed that bribery statute. And now it's virtually impossible to to convict anybody or charge them with bribery uh, in public corruption uh, because it's now you have to basically, as we've you know, we've said before, you have to be like, Hello, Mr. Senator, take this bag of cash. And in exchange, I would like for you to vote on this marijuana legislation this way. And then they have to say, understood, I'm accepting this cash in exchange. I mean, it's got to be like it's got to be explicit (laughs) quid pro quo. It used to be, hey, you voted this way. This guy asked you, told you how he wanted you to vote. You voted that way. And then a month later, he let you drive his Ferrari for the weekend. Mm -hmm. And you could connect those things as like an implicit bargain. Yeah. And they basically said, no, no, it has to be a perfectly clear quid pro quo, one thing for the other thing. Yeah. So SCOTUS tossed out that conviction. That was 2016. And in January of 2022, think about that. That's a year and a half ago. I tweeted, quote, Susan Collins seems to be trying to give Donald a pass here by saying that the Electoral Count Act is ambiguous. No, it isn't. I went on to say, we have to put do not eat labels on deodorant, not because it's complicated to use, but because of the four people who are too dumb not to eat it. (laughs) Wait a minute, you can't eat that? (laughs) That's my little analogy there for the coup. Thank you. Then on February 1st, 
couple days later, same year, 2022, Manu Raju tweeted, when asked about Trump's statement that Pence should have overturned the election, Portman told me, well, we need to clarify how the Electoral Count Act works. When asked if he had concerns with the Trump statement, he said, well, it's very confusing right now, and that's why it needs to be clarified. I quote tweeted that saying, I bet you Republicans are going to say the reason the January 6th committee is looking to shore up the Electoral Count Act is because it's somehow confusing or ambiguous. This helps Donald set up a defense that he didn't know Pence couldn't just delay for 10 days. Don't listen. Now, I think Trump's attorneys know he's going to be convicted. I I do, Andy. Yeah, it's a tough indictment. (laughs) It's a tough indictment. (laughs) It's pretty airtight. And I think they're now they're setting up to appeal and get their case in front of this Supreme Court and argue that the Electoral Count Act was vague and ambiguous and try to narrow it just like Bob McDonald did with the Corruption and Bribery Act. Now, even Eastman admitted in a crime fraud accepted email that they would lose this case. Well, he, first he said 7-2, but then he said 9-0. <laughs> uh, but, but they don't really have any other viable defense. But, well, they're, they're trying a few things. But, uh, you know, it is of note. You remember who prosecuted Bob McDonald? I do. And his name is Jack Smith. <laughs> I mean, you're, I, I think you've, you've hit on a really good issue, which is, uh, to be fair, this is not an unheard of defense tactic, right? The defense, in addition to thinking through and lining up uh, potential defenses to use at trial, they also raise issues at trial to just plant them like landmines in the case so that in the event that they're client is convicted, they can go back to those little things and try to use them to overturn the conviction after the fact. So, you know, this is this is a great example of one of those. If you try to bring the Electoral Count Act into the case, which quite frankly, I think is very hard to do because none of the charges really have anything to do with it. They could try to get their their goal will be to like get the conviction in front of the Supreme Court on some grounds on the hope, the Hail Mary, you know, pass hope that the court will find uh, a reason to overturn the conviction. So it's a it's a super long shot strategy, but it is one of many that they'll deploy here. There's We've already seen them kind of air out a few potential defenses um, mm-hmm. on, on TV and in uh, commentary and things like that. Um, one of them is this, oh, I was just following the advice of counsel. Like somehow if you just fought, you know, if your lawyer tells you to do something, it somehow gives you like this cloak of invisibility or something that you can't then be held responsible for what you did because some lawyer told you to do it. <laughs> it does not work that way. A judge determined that it wasn't attorney client privilege because right. of the crime fraud exception. It's, <laughs> it just doesn't work um, that way. And there's a bunch of problems with it. The first is when your lawyers are counseling you to do things that they're telling you are violating the law, which is what John Eastman did. He explained, and it was a great quote in the indictment where he says, it'll just require a slight uh, violation of the Electoral Count Act. And then goes on to right. you know say, please do it. That doesn't, that doesn't get you there. It also would require Trump two things. One, to testify in his own defense. He'd have to put that defense on himself by testifying, which would open up such a terrible can of worms for him on a million other counts because then he would get cross-examined likely for a week by some very skillful prosecutors. And Trump's lawyers know, like, he can't take the stand here. It would be 
it would be deadly. So there's that. And also you have to waive all the attorney client privilege too, don't you? Yes. It it <laughs> you've made an issue of what your lawyer told you to do. And therefore, to just get that issue in court, you have to waive attorney client privilege with that lawyer. So that opens the floodgates to then you have to testify about all these conversations you had with your lawyer. So these are bad things. And so that's one that I don't think is a real defense. Well, can I let me ask you a question about about the attorney client privilege or the um advice of counsel? Four of these six co-conspirators are facing disbarment. Does that play into this as well? I mean, it's not a good fact. You know, <laughs> lawyers are always talking about good facts and bad facts. Facts, good facts that support their case and bad facts make their case look terrible. I'd say that's a bad fact, although I don't think it has particular legal significance. And a lot of those proceedings will be going on forever. I think it would be important for a jury to hear though, right? Yeah. because I, I don't know if you could get it in front of the jury because yeah. it's one of those things that if it's, it's relevance is low and it's uh, kind of uh, inflammatory effect on the jurors is high. And so that's that balancing that judges do to sometimes decide to keep evidence out. So the other defense has been talked about a lot that I don't think really gets them anywhere uh, is this First Amendment defense that, oh, the Justice Department is criminalizing the uh, former president's exercise of his First Amendment rights and his, you know, f- nothing's more protected than political speech. This is all political speech. And this is proof that Joe Biden is actually doing this to keep him out of the election. La, 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 la. Well, as a legal matter, and we'll talk about the political in just a second, but as a legal matter, the First Amendment defense doesn't really work because they're basically saying, hey, anything I say that has any sort of political relevance is completely protected and cannot possibly form the basis of a crime. That's not true. What he's being, what's criminalized here, what he's being um, charged with is not the statements in the abstract sense. It's the fact that he, it's not the things he said, it's the things that he did. His behaviors, right. Yeah, he participated in the scheme to enlist fake electors to undermine the counting of the votes. He participated in conversations with state-level officials in an effort to push them and coerce them into changing their own state results, changing the counting of the votes, finding new votes for him, things like that. Um, He participated in conversations where he tried to coerce Mike Pence into not certifying the election. So what you're criminalizing is conduct, not speech. And the other thing I would point out is the criminal law penalizes speech all the time. It's not protected speech to coerce someone or cheat them out of money. Every fraud in the criminal code requires some element of speech. So if I call you up, Allison, and I tell you a lie in order to convince you to send me your money, that's wire fraud. It's not protected speech. The lie that I told you to to scheme you out of your money is not protected speech. If I threaten you for the purpose of uh, causing you to give me something of value, that threat is not protected by the First Amendment. It is part of the crime of extortion. And what he's done, according to this indictment, yeah, he used speech. He lied to people. He pressured them. He coerced them. He participated in putting together these illegal efforts to send fake electors forward as a part of an effort to steal the election. 
So that is not First Amendment protected speech on any grounds. No. And if he had charged inciting an insurrection under Title 18, U.S. Code Section 2383, there would be a First Amendment yes, argument. Yes, much tougher. Much like there was in the second impeachment hearing of, of Donald Trump. Um, and I, he also has a double jeopardy defense, which is hilarious because the Senate tried him for this and acquitted him. And he thinks that somehow impeachment trials are applied to double jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably might that might just be bluster and hope, probably won't end up in a court filing. But who knows? I'm I'm pretty sure that will if, if they did, it would end up in a granted motion in limine to, to remove that yep. as a defense. The other one that I want to debunk quickly is this thing that people are throwing out there like, well, what if he truly believed the election had been stolen from him? So he was acting under that. He was acting honestly under this misbelief, essentially. Also, um, maybe relevant in some way, but it's not determinative of the case. So the mental state, the mens rea that you have to prove with every crime in these crimes is knowing and willful. It's not that he believed he'd lost the race and now he was doing these things to undermine that result. It's that he knowingly and willing, willfully engaged in this conduct. Mm -hmm. He knowingly and willfully engaged in the scheme to put together the fake electors, or he knowingly and willfully engaged in pressuring Mike Pence. It doesn't matter whether he actually thought the election had been stolen from him or he knew he lost and he was just flat out trying to steal it. That would be like saying, well, I, you know, I George gonna, Conway. I was just going to bring up George Conway's example with OJ. Is that what you were about to go yeah, to? Yeah, he was. I was sitting <laughs> on the panel with him when he laid that out there. And I was like, that is brilliant, George. Wasn't so it? Yeah. OJ, in his slightly less famous second case, the one that he went to jail on, he believed that his memorabilia had been stolen from him. And he found out that there were people in a hotel who had the stuff. And so he went over to get it back. He, I, I think, honestly believed that his stuff had been un, illegally taken from him. So he went into that hotel room with a gun and he held everybody at gunpoint and <laughs> took all of his stuff back. The fact that he legitimately believed that his stuff had been stolen doesn't make the assault with a deadly weapon any less criminal. So he's that's why that's why he went to jail. I don't know if he's still in jail or not, but nevertheless. Um, so uh, yeah, Trump's belief in whether or not he won or lost, you know, it's going to be interesting to the jury to hear all this evidence that he actually knew he didn't win. I expect that they're going to spend a lot of time putting witnesses on who said, I told him that he, he lost. I told him there was no fraud. And these will be strong uh, Republican witnesses, White House counsel, people like that. So that you'll hear that. But what he believed in terms of the election is not determinative. Agreed. Uh, let's talk about the arraignment really quick, and then a, a DOJ filing that with that happened, I think, with less than twenty four or forty eight hours after the arraignment. Um, he was all by himself on this indictment, right? We talked about mm -hmm. that. That's probably for speed, because Jack Smith has asked for a speedy trial, which is a seventy day endeavor. Things get told for certain reasons, right? And they and they send those updated reports about how many days have passed in the speedy, you know, on the speedy trial clock and how many days have been told. We saw a report like that in the documents case. So he's asked for a speedy trial here. And you normally, like we said, it's a defendant that asks for a speedy trial. 
Uh, but here he's asking on behalf of the American people and in the interest of, of the public mm -hmm. uh, for a speedy trial, because it's our right to have one as well. Uh, we're all victims. Um, Judge Tanya Chutkin has drawn the case. Um, she's a, a formidable, amazing, fair judge. She's an Obama appointee. Um, she's commented on presidents not being kings before in her courtroom when dealing with January 6th um, cases from, you know, the boots on the ground attack on the Capitol. She's Jamaican born, and I am counting down the seconds before Trump brings that up and starts <laughs> doing some weird uh, racist thing about that. Um, but she came yeah. from Kingston and then, you know, came here, went to law school and became she a judge. She was a a really accomplished defense attorney, which yes. is a little bit different. You see a lot of like people with prosecutorial backgrounds going onto the bench. She was a public defender in DC for a long time. She's got tons of trial experience. She was in, worked in the private sector for a while as a defense attorney and um, has a reputation of being very smart, no nonsense, moves the cases forward, by all accounts, a good judge. And unlike Amit Mehta, her sentencing for January 6th, folks, has been at, close to at or above uh, the recommendations for the sentencing guidelines handed down by the Department of Justice. So yep. we'll see how that goes. Because we, we know that Merrick Garland has dropped a note saying he plans to appeal the Oath Keeper's sentences handed down by Judge Amit Mehta for coming in eight years under the 25-year recommended sentencing and even more in some cases, I think somebody was recommended for 12 and he gave him four. Like he's coming mm. in way under. Way low. Yeah. And I expect to see that appeal filed now at any day uh, <laughs> because he's, the, Jack Smith has asked for the speedy trial. We'll see what happens there. I'm, maybe they're not connected. Maybe I'm just connecting them in my head, but they're all charged with 1512 C2. So <laughs> be nice we'll to see. have that resolved <laughs> before we get there, but we'll see. It would be. Now Trump pled not guilty to all charges. No surprise there. Jack Smith was there. Uh, as well as some judges came in and sat in the front row, including Chief Judge Boesberg, uh, Judge Amy Berman Jackson, Judge Beryl Howell. Now, um, that's, that's remarkable. That never, ever happens. I've never seen another judge just come walking in and sitting in the gallery of a different judge's proceeding trial. It's certainly not arraignments. Arraignments are like boring. Like it's the same every time. You don't really expect fireworks. But uh, yeah, incredible that they showed up. Historic moment. It's it's a, a truly historic moment in in mm -hmm. in the United States. Um, he's out on bail. The conditions include not speaking to witnesses. Same basic conditions that they've had uh, they had down in the Mar-a-Lago case. He's not allowed to speak to witnesses about the facts of the case. The magistrate judge that presided over the arraignment spoke to Judge Chutkin and reminded after speaking to Judge Chutkin rem reminded Trump specifically, "You can't commit any crimes while you're out on bail." Um, just want you to know that. Um, and, and sometimes I hear that, but not in every case. But it was brought up specifically in this case. And also, the magistrate judge said that Judge Chutkin has set the next hearing, or they set the next hearing for August 28th. They had three picked, and of course, the Trump lawyers picked the latest, the, the you know, the furthest away date, which is August 28th. But the discussion with Chutkin, they they gamed this out ahead of time saying, hey, what if he doesn't show up? And and so what the, they've decided to say is if Trump can't make it, you don't have to be there, pal. I'm having this hearing to set the trial date yeah. and you don't have to be there. It seems like she's prepared for his delay shenanigans. Um, yeah. And it's also it, it also kind of um, it's like she's doing him a favor. Hey, I, I'll let you out of this one. So it's it's an easy way to put one in the I'm nice to you 
box. Right? Mm-hmm. But also, you're not going to delay this. <laughs> Have a nice exactly. day. Uh, I assume Jack Smith has all discovery ready to go, same as the Mar-a-Lago case. Uh, each party has five days to file a brief asking for the trial date of their choosing. Now, Jack Smith, like I said, said 70 days in court. Trump said Trump's lawyers asked for three and a half years from now. Um, and they asked for they asked for that based on a miscalculation of how long the investigation been yeah. going on. They said, well, they've had three and a half years to investigate, not mm. figuring out that three and a half years is long before January 6th, but whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, Alvin Bragg, we, as we know, uh, we, you and I have talked about this. He has said publicly he'd be willing to give up his March trial date uh, in the interest of justice, which is, is pretty plain language for in case the DOJ wants to go in March. Uh, and they might take him up on that. But hey, December's also free. The documents case wasn't scheduled in December. Uh, yeah. So hey, I, I, I think I, my money and I, you know, I am a betting person. You know me. I speculate all over the place. I think Jack Smith will ask for December with eyes on March. That's what I think. Um, and we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Um, his co-conspirators have not been indicted yet, as you said. So we'll see what happens. But also then Trump tweeted or truthed, excuse me, which uh, is also under federal criminal investigation, his truth social uh, DWAC SPAC thing and how that was funded uh, by rubles probably. Uh, anyway. I digress. Uh, back to what he truthed on Truth Social. He said, if you come after me, I'm coming after you, in all caps. And then within hours, DOJ put a filing in for a protective order, not a gag order, a protective order over discovery, meaning all the evidence we're going to hand over, just like we did down in Florida for the documents case, all the evidence we wanted under a protective order because dissemination of that evidence seems likely here. And then they included that um, post to, you know, if, if you come after me, I'm coming after you in this filing, I think, to get Judge Chutkin's eyes on it above anything else. Uh, and we'll see what uh, how Judge Chutkin will respond. I am 100 percent sure she's going to grant a protective order for the um, for the discovery. But what do you think? Do you think I think because we're talking about avoiding First Amendment arguments here up and down the line. We saw Department of Justice in the arraignment of Donald Trump down in Florida. They, they were like, we don't have any bail conditions. None. And it was the judge who was like, maybe you should have some. And they were like, OK, cool. Uh, I don't think they're going to try to get a, the DOJ is going to try to get a gag order here. I'm not sure what the judge would do, but I think they'll probably avoid that kind of the same way Judge Amy Berman Jackson did with Roger Stone let him go, let him go, and then finally was like, all right, with the crosshairs, you've clearly now violated, uh, or, you know, you're stepping over the line here. How do you think this is going to play out? I I think you're right. I think that the First Amendment issue is clearly a third rail here, right? Jack Smith, I, I think, intentionally wrote this indictment with an eye on staying away from anything that could, that could raise a legitimate First Amendment defense. Um, he put in one of the very first paragraphs of the indictment, he, he makes it very clear that they're not, this doesn't have any, you know, Trump has the right to say whatever he wants and and has the right to lie if he chooses to do so and engage in political speech. So that kind of set the tone here. Um, Jack Smith's team's got to protect the evidence in this case. So asking for the protective order for the sake of protecting the discovery, the evidence that is turned over to the defense and discovery is a 
totally legit thing to do, but it also, as you said, gives them an opportunity to put that post in front of the judge's eyes. We also know that the judges in both cases are sensitive to to Trump's nonsense. Like you said, in the Mar-a-Lago case, it was the court that said, don't you want to ask me to to prohibit him from speaking to witnesses. So the judges are thinking like this guy has a history of trying to influence people improperly. In this case, you get the judge, uh, the magistrate judge saying, you know, be careful not to commit any more crimes while you're out on your own recognizance. And you don't have to show up for the hearing where I schedule the trial yeah. date. So yeah. <laughs> so they know they, they're familiar with what they're, uh, who they're dealing with here. I think like, you know, I can't see a gag order coming in unless he just goes totally over the line and starts uh, clearly and and unambiguously calling for violence, whether that's violence towards the prosecutors or the judge or any witness or anyone, really. At that point, um, a gag order would be would be pretty, uh, pretty, pretty called for, I guess. Um, but until you get there. I think everybody knows you're just going to have to hold their noses and keep moving forward. Yeah, I mean, we saw a, a picture of him with a baseball bat next to Alvin Bragg, and there's no gag order. So, you right. know, it's got to be really, really over the line. You just don't want to touch that 1A stuff. Um, anyway, we need to take a quick break before we head down to Florida. So uh, everybody stick around. There's We have a whole other case we have to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I wanna act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. 
Subscribe now. Welcome back. Okay, AG, let's head down to Florida and touch base with what's been happening in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Um, This week we had Carlos de Oliveira, who appeared in court for his arraignment. And once again, you have a Mar-a-Lago defendant shows up without a lawyer. Must be like a real shortage of lawyers down there in Florida. So obvious what's happening here. Walt Nauta pulled this nonsense uh, when he was originally indicted with Trump in the first indictment. It bought them like a month, right? Because then, of course, when he was scheduled to come down with his lawyer, he got stuck on a plane in New York and you know, it was all, all that nonsense. So De Oliveira does the same thing, shows up with no local counsel. He asked for an August 25th arraignment. So like, please give me another month, essentially, to find a local lawyer And the judge didn't put up with it. She moved the arraignment back to August 10th. So we'll see what happens on round two. If he inexplicably travels to New York and can't get a flight home uh, because of bad weather, I'm going to start to think uh, something's really going on here. (laughs) So in addition to that uh, delay, we also had Yusil Tavares. I'm Um, I'm sorry. Can you imagine like climate change is a hoax, but it is preventing me from showing up to court? (laughs) The Supreme Court must intervene on climate change. Okay, Yusil uh, Tavares, Mar-a-Lago employee who oversees the property's surveillance cameras. Um, it turns out Tavares received a target letter from federal prosecutors after uh, Donald Trump was first indicted in June. So likely as a result of that target letter, Tavares met with investigators following the initial indictment in the classified docs case and provided information. Once the indictment was issued, Tavares changed lawyers. Now, this is really interesting because so far he's the first person that we know of that's broken free of the Trump legal team, I'll call it. These are the collection of lawyers who are all being paid for, we believe, by the Save America PAC. He's the first one to really split off, get his own counsel. And as a result, he has not found himself under indictment yet, and he is likely in an agreement to provide information to uh, the federal government. So it's interesting. It reminds us, of course, of Cassidy Hutchinson. I mean, Cassidy Hutchinson and her bombshell testimony in front of the January 6th committee uh, ultimately revealed she went through a similar process. She had lawyers provided to her by the Trump team, a lawyer by the name of Stefan Passantino. She eventually broke away from Passantino because she was was pretty clear that he was not representing her you know, according to her best interest, but rather in an effort to protect Trump. So I don't know, what's what's your thoughts about uh, these developments from Mar-a-Lago? Um, I, I wasn't surprised, first of all, that, um, you know, they, that Delavera didn't have local counsel. That just is a, the game that they're going to play until this is over. And, but, and all- it's, it's the dog ate my homework version <laughs> of the documents case. In all the cases. But yeah, I am very interested in... You know, because here we have uh, Tavares, uh, who didn't have rights to their surveillance footage, right? He didn't have the administrative rights to it. Um, And he is not indicted here. And I think that that shows all, even like all the way up to Walt Nauta, like, hey, if you you talk, get a better lawyer, ditch Stanley Woodward, get a better lawyer and, uh, you know, tell them what happened. You might not go to jail or you could go to jail for a lot less, you know, a lot fewer years. But the other thing here is much like in the January 6th committee hearings, when we found out the troubling information about Passantino and Cassidy Hutchinson, 
if there was any undue pressure put on Tavares by Stanley Woodward, who is a Trump PAC paid lawyer, like you said, he can now give that information to to Jack Smith. Now, it's real hard to, I think, prosecute those kinds of crimes, but it possibly could be referred to the bar or, you know, something else. But if we've got a flipper who had to change lawyers, if there was any undue pressure on him to say, I don't recall, or to change his testimony or his, you know, his answers to investigators, Jack Smith's going to have that information now, just like the January 6th committee had that information about Passantino and Cassidy Hutchinson. Yeah. And and though it's probably unlikely that that information would lead to a criminal investigation, what it could do is give the special counsel team more leverage in in bringing these uh, motions in front of the judge to review potential conflicts of interest. They would share that information as like, here's why you should be concerned about this lawyer being representing multiple people on different sides, because we know that in the case of this person, Tavares, you know, there are allegations of divided loyalties, what have you. So it's definitely relevant. The other thing that's fascinating to me about this, Allison, is like the part of the story that we don't know about... (laughs) De Oliveira and Tavares. We know about the furtive meeting in the AV room, through the tunnel with the flashlights, whatever, which is great. Um, and we know that it, you know, Tavares says, I can't do it. I don't have the rights to delete the server. And then De Oliveira says, well, the boss wants it. So what are we going to do? What we don't know is what, what they actually did. Yeah, the story ends right there, right? right. So and Tavares well, the story got, continues. We just don't have it yet. Tavares so, got a, t- well, it ends in the indictment that we know about. And yeah, t- Tavares yeah. got a target letter for obstruction. So he did something wrong right at the end of that conversation. And we don't know what it is yet. Well, and so... It also dovetails with like, this is why we've been saying for months, like the, the special counsel is really focused on this issue of the video surveillance and did they actually get an unedited, you know, full copy of the footage or not. Tavares can unlock that whole mystery for them. and probably has already. And if what actually happened doesn't really put Tavares in that bad of a light, like he actually stood up and said, hey, I can't do this. I'm not doing it. Well, um, he, you know, he might have said, I, I mean, I just can't do it because I don't have the login to do it. Yeah, who knows? I mean, we don't know. Or he might have said, hey, I can't do it, but this guy, get on the phone with so-and-so. Calamari Jr. And we do have text messages with Calamari Jr. Right. So he facilitates it, but doesn't really have his hands on it. So he's like at a different level of culpability. The other problem that I've always had with the De Oliveira indictment is, how is it Like, what's the government prepared to do if De Oliveira walks in and says, yeah, my boss called me, said, get the the server deleted. I don't know about it. I don't know about a subpoena. I don't know about a corridor. I don't know about nothing. All I know is I work for him. He asked me to delete the server, which in and of itself, by itself, outside the context of the subpoena is not illegal. It's not illegal to delete your server. Um, So how do you prove, you you know, try to hold him, you know, accountable for obstruction How do you prove that he actually knew why he was being asked to take those steps? And Tavares can likely add more texture to that exchange that they had that firmly puts De Oliveira in the grease. They've got to have some information. Well, there was that 24-minute phone call between Trump and De De Oliveira. And this, this, I guess, quote-unquote cooperation of Tavares will pressure De Oliveira 
to to start cooperating with the government because yeah. if they can get the content of that 24 minute conversation i mean this is this indictment's already a lock but that would that yeah. would that would be very damning to <laughs> put trump put it into outer space for donald right, trump exactly right, yeah all right we um want to talk a little bit about uh, that uh, DOJ, that Department of Justice filing uh, for the conflict of interest because of Stanley Woodward representing multiple people on different sides. But we have to take one last quick break. Uh, We'll be right back. Stick around. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Everybody, welcome back. Uh, Andy, you and I talked last week about there being a pretty clear conflict of interest, right? Now that Tavares seems to be seems to be cooperating at least a little bit with special counsel uh, and that he had the same lawyer as Walt Nauta. That's Stanley Woodward. We've talked about him a lot. He seems to be the new Passantino. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we talked about him uh, quite a bit with the Cassidy Hutchinson thing in the last segment. But this is from Hugo Lowell at The Guardian. Uh, he's confirmed a lot of things that we were sort of assuming. Federal prosecutors requested a hearing to inform Walt Nauta about his lead lawyer's potential conflicts of interest stemming from his defense uh, of at least three witnesses that could testify against Nauta and the former president. One is described as someone who worked in the White House during Trump's presidency and then subsequently worked for Trump at uh, Mar-a-Lago. 
Another is someone who worked for Trump's re-election campaign and worked for Trump's political action committee. I think that might be that Wiles person. Susie Wiles, maybe. After Trump's presidency ended. And, the, uh, and so, you know, the, there's now three potential witnesses that could testify against Nauta, including Tavares, right? The prosecutors made the request to U.S. District Court Judge Aileen Cannon on Wednesday explaining... Nauta's lead lawyer, Stan Woodward, represents two key Trump employees and formerly advised the Mar-a-Lago IT guy. That's Tavares, who is cooperating. Uh, now, quote, and, and Hugo Lowell says he is cooperating here in this case. Whether there's a formal cooperation agreement, I, I don't know if I've seen that, but um, he is cooperating. All three of these witnesses, quote, may be witnesses for the government at trial, raising the possibility that Mr. Woodward might be in the position of cross-examining past or current clients. So this is called... A Garcia hearing. Can you explain what that is? Sure. So the purpose of this hearing is not really, people tend to look at it as like, oh, this is the government trying to take out one of the defense attorneys. And in some, some cases, that's the result. But really what the, the government has an obligation to bring to the court's attention that a witness or a defendant might be being represented by someone who has a conflict of interest. And so the if the uh, judge agrees to the request for this hearing, they bring the defendants in and the lawyers, but the purpose is to let to let the judge, the independent you know party, explain to the defendants what the conflict the potential conflicts are, and to give the defendants an opportunity to either say, "I want a new lawyer that that concerns me. I think I should get a new lawyer." Or they can say, I understand that these potential conflicts exist and I'm prepared to waive them. And then that way, later, uh, especially if one of these people who needs this advice is a defendant in the case, if they are and they decide to waive the conflict they, and then they get convicted, they can't come back later and appeal and say, oh, I should have had a different, you know, my lawyer had a conflict of interest and I didn't know, la, la, la. So it's uh, really- so that's, uh, the, that's the waiving of conflict of interest is what Yeah, that, that's, that's the what point of the hearing to explain the conflicts to the defendant or witness who's, in, who's implicated by the multiple representations by one attorney and to- to get a waiver if if that's um, necessary and chosen by the by the person. Oh, I see. Now, um, Hugo Lowe confirms that after Trump and Nauta were indicted, uh, Tavares changed lawyers, swapped out Woodward, and he did confirm that the legal bills are being paid by the Save America PAC. Um, now, later on, uh, Tavares decided to share more evidence with prosecutors about how Nauta and Mar-a-Lago maintenance worker De La Vera asked him to delete the surveillance footage. And that's the basis, uh, according to Hugo Lowell here, that formed the basis of the superseding indictment. The court filing said Tavares told prosecutors he is not opposed to Woodward continuing to represent Nauta, uh, but he didn't consent to Woodward using or disclosing his confidential deliberations in the course of defending Nauta. Yeah, this is really uh, interesting. So we talked about how the hearing is really for the protection of the witness or the defendant. On the other side of this equation is the lawyer. And lawyers are expected to police their own conflicts of interest. And one of the things that a lawyer cannot do, you know, lawyers get confidential information from their clients all the time. That's the basic relationship you have with your lawyer. If you are representing two individuals in the same matter, you can't use confidential information that you receive from one client to the disadvantage of another client. 
And this is nowhere is this more relevant than in a criminal case. So like here, if Woodward continues to represent Nauta and Yusil Tavares ends up as a witness for the government, Tavares will take the stand and provide information, uh, presumably against Nauta. Then Woodward will have an opportunity to cross-examine Nauta, to undermine Nauta in front of the jury, to accuse him of being a liar or not credible or whatever. Um, now that seems like it, it poses a lot of potential danger uh, for the yeah, case. Impo- like- it was almost impossible for Woodward to cross-examine Tavares in that in that hypothetical without using information that he had gotten from Tavares. Right? He's he's like he's straddling both sides of the case in that moment. So it's hard for me to understand how a judge would even allow a defendant or a witness to waive a conflict that is so uh, significant. Yeah. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes they'll say, no, I, I can't countenance this. You need to go get a new lawyer or you need to go get a new lawyer. We saw that with the Fonnie Willis and the fraudulent electors um, when they weren't offered their immunity deal. Um, and it, it says right here in the DOJ filing about that cross-examination scenario Um, It raises two principal dangers. They say, first, the conflict may result in the attorney's improper use or disclosure of the client's confidences, which is what you said. But also, on the flip side, the conflict may cause the attorney to pull his punches. Um, So it's kind of for both, like for the the betterment of both sides there. Imagine in his his prior consultation with, with Tavares, Tavares tells... Woodward, some, some like, hey, I got convicted of fraud once before, right? So that's like, really goes to your quality of being a truth teller, truth and veracity, all that kind of stuff. So now Tavares takes a stand against his client, Nauta. Um, so Woodward's got to make a decision. Do I bring up Tavares's prior fraud case and just eviscerate him in front of the jury? To do so would be using the information he gave me against him which is a violation of the attorney ethics. Or I choose not to do that because I don't want to violate his rights. And by not doing it, I am now not representing Nauta as vigorously as I possibly could. So it's, I don't know how you resolve it. The very definition no of conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. Violating somebody's interest. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that um, Tavares was fine with Woodward's style. I would not be fine <laughs> with that. I'd be like, no, yeah. out, peace out, bro. But it is up to the judge. It'll be up to the judge here. Right, that's right. And he might change his, you know, could change his mind on that. But it's an interesting thing that is going to come up again and again. You have um, in the January 6th case, you have Todd Blanche, right, who is Trump's primary attorney, also previously represented Boris Epstein, who might be co-conspirator number six. <laughs> and Epstein could end up serving as a witness in the case against Trump. So how does Todd Blanche cross-examine Boris Epstein after having prior been his attorney and received confidential information from him? So it's just, it's going to happen again and again in both of these cases. Yeah, because it's a, a small lawyer world over there uh, uh, in, in Trump land. Um, and also prosecutors um, said there will be additional conflicts for Woodward in this DOJ filing because there are eight total witnesses <laughs> that were ensnared wow. by the grand jury investigation. And uh, and also one last little piece, uh, Hugo Lowell confirmed that Nauda and Trump are in an informal joint defense agreement. Okay. 
Um, I could have, that seems like true. <laughs> if um, it's informal, that means it'll only last as long as Nauta, Nauta brings him yeah. a warm Diet Coke instead of a cold <laughs> one. And before we get to our listener question, we just have some breaking news. Back up to the uh, D.C. charges. Judge Chutkin has ordered Donald Trump to respond to the DOJ's protective order filing, the one that included that truth social, included that truth social post, by 5 p.m. Monday. All right. So she's not messing around on no, timelines here. Keeping everything on a short string. That's good to see. So she's going to get right on this this week. That'll be interesting. Yeah, definitely. All right. Listener questions. If you have a question for Andy or I, you can send it to us at hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Make sure to put Jack in the subject line. That is how we sort these emails. What do we have this week, Andy? All right, Allison. So this one comes to us from someone whose uh, name and location I did not get. So I'm going to call this very nice person from somewhere. And you'll see why I call them that because it begins with, first off, you both rock. And then the emoji for like, uh, you know. Headbanging emoji. Headbanging right on sort of hand. So I'm loving that. And by the way, you know, you want to get your question on the air to flatter the host is like one of the best ways to do it. Okay. So this person says, I have a question about sentencing. You've taught me that one of the factors a judge considers when sentencing is whether or not the defendant has previously been convicted of a crime. Uh, So let's say Trump ends up convicted in all three cases against him. Can a judge wait to see if there's convictions in other cases before sentencing or postpone sentencing or revisit a sentence later to take that into account. So That's good, a good question. question. Yeah, when do you have to be when do you have to be convicted and sentenced by to count for it to count in the sentencing <laughs> guidelines as a previous conviction? Yeah, so I guess the first thing to say is that judges have enormous discretion over over lots of things but um particularly scheduling, scheduling things like sentencing hearings and they can delay that for weeks, months, even years sometimes. I've seen cooperators go years before they get sentenced oh, yeah. Green, because they're continuing to cooperate. Joel Greenberg, right, down there in the old Matt Gates case. Yeah, there you go. Good example. So you could just delay it and delay it until the conviction or the sentence from the other thing comes in. The second thing they do is uh, after you're convicted, either by guilty plea or at trial, there's always a period of time before you get sentenced. And during that period of time, this the judge... Uh, has the probation department put together a pre-sentencing report. And that report really covers everything that the judge might need to consider. It's biographical details. It's all kinds of things about your job and your career and your your family structure, whatever, How what kind of support you have in life. Also, it includes a very detailed chronology of your past criminal history. And so that would clearly indicate to the judge that there were other ongoing pending matters. So as a as a baseline matter, the judge is thinking about sentencing. If you this they're sentencing you on the single only criminal matter you've ever dealt with, that's one frame of mind. If this is just one of four other or three or however many other ongoing criminal matters, that's a very different frame of mind for the judge. So that's a way they can kind of informally kind of put that uh, into the equation. Um, and then finally, you know, they, they, there's also possible that a lot of judges are like, Hey, I'm only ruling on the thing in front of me. I'm not waiting for anybody else. Um, and so they would, they, it's possible they could disregard it entirely. So it's really, I know that's a very lawyerly response. It's open-ended. Each one of these situations is very different, very fact dependent. Uh, but I can't imagine that any judge would sentence Donald Trump 
without a strong understanding of all the other legal trouble he currently faces. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I, I'm. I also wonder, like, just about when you go in and you look at the sentencing guidelines, what they particularly say about what counts to to get those numbers that you know correspond with a range of years. Um, I I'm not sure, but it can still be put in the sentencing recommendations if it's not reached a, a conviction yet as something to consider. And like you said, the judge has a broad leeway to to take these things into account or not. You've seen them make downward departures because somebody is older. You've seen them make downward departures because someone's younger. You've seen them make mm-hmm. upward departures because of maybe an un, a, a previous crime that was thrown out by a pardon, but you know not technically convicted. So I mean, all of these things can yeah. play play a role. Uh, but uh, you know, as far as the sentencing guidelines go, it'll be mentioned, but to put in the calculation, then you know, then the, the I, that's the reason. There's a range in the sentencing guidelines. That's right. That's so that, right. So that they can say, well, the range is 20 to 30 years, but because he's he's got four other pending criminal things, we'd like to say 27, you know, instead yeah, of in the that's middle. Where, that's exactly right. That's where the range comes in. That's why the sentencing guidelines, despite whatever the calculation is, it's only advisory. It's not yeah. controlling. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, room there, intentionally so, to factor in things like this. Yep. And we still have more to go um, <laughs> down in Georgia. We'll see what happens there. Uh, we'll be covering the federal cases here. We'll be covering me. Uh, Pete Strzok and I will, will cover the, the state cases over on Clean Up on L45. And we'll shove it all in the Daily Beans somehow. But thank you so much. This is uh, 36 weeks it took um, yeah. to, to get the, the, I mean, we were waiting, obviously, for the classified documents case. But uh, truly, honestly, the the more important to democracy case here is is the events leading up to uh, and preceding the attempted coup uh, by a former president. And we have the charges, and they're simple and they're straightforward. I think it's an open and shut case, and we'll see uh, on August twenty eighth when that trial will take place. Yeah, that's right. As I said, one of the most important cases clearly ever in the history of this. Uh, country's experience with the criminal justice system and um, one that deserves uh, the nation's attention. And uh, it's been it's been a long time coming, a short time worked by Jack Smith, but um, it's it's great that we have finally gotten to this point and we're going to cover it very closely. And part of that coverage is going to include reading the indictment, just a straight up, not a dramatic retelling, just a straight up serious reading. Uh, We're going to do that, and uh, we'll put that out for you to give you the opportunity to hear exactly what the prosecutors have alleged. Mm. I assume most people listening to our program have probably read the indictment, um, but if you want to listen to it, that's going to be great. But this really, the reason I wanted to do this is for the folks who listen to this program who have people, family, friends in their lives who might not have the time uh, to read the indictment fully. They can just listen to it. So you can send it to everybody in your email list, everybody that you know, put it on your social media. Um, we're counting on you all to spread the word and get this uh, as many ears or eyes on this, indi- uh, on this indictment as possible. The American people need to know what's in it. So we appreciate your help with that. And of course, we'll be back next week. But you can look for that uh, dramatic reading here in the next day or two uh, if it doesn't drop on the same day that this episode drops. So thank you very much to everyone for listening. We will keep you informed on these charges. There probably will be superseding stuff. So stay tuned. Uh, We'll be back next week. I'm Allison Gill. 
And I'm Andy McCabe. We'll see you then. M-S-W Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.